Hello, and welcome to the Bradley Lectures podcast from AEI. I'm your host, Jackson Wolford. The recent American bombing of Iranian militias in Syria has raised a number of questions. Have the last four years of minimal foreign policy engagement passed? Is America reasserting its position as a sort of police force of the post-Soviet world? And if it is, should it? This month, we'll listen to journalist and foreign affairs scholar Farid Zakaria deliver a 1997 lecture on the limits of realpolitik. Here, he'll examine both the applications and limits of foreign policy realism, while ultimately maintaining one argument in favor of the importance of America's role as a governing force on the world stage. Before we begin, once again, I'd like to invite you to reach out to us via email at bradleylecturespod at aei.org. If you have any feedback, comments, or topics you'd like to hear lectures on in the future, just let us know. Now, our 1997 lecture from Fareed Zakaria. When Sartre was once asked whom he thought was the greatest writer in France, in French history, he thought for a minute and said, alas, Balzac. Because for Sartre, of course, this was the embodiment of everything he didn't like about, about French writing and yet had to admit that Balzac's influence was undeniable. If you were to ask me who is the greatest foreign policy president in American history, I would have to answer, alas, Woodrow Wilson. Wilson casts a shadow over modern American history the way no other president has ever done, really before or since. Despite all the interesting diplomatic statecraft that we, we, we see in John Quincy Adams, the celebrity of Henry Kissinger, and the tough-mindedness of Harry Truman, Wilson transformed the, the way Americans related to the world and the way they, they looked at the world, really. The reason for this, I think, is that Wilson embodies a, a distinctive tradition, an Anglo-American tradition in international politics. He embodied it in a very full-flowered full manner. It is what one could call the philosophy of choice, the idea that choices abound in the international realm, that foreign policy is, in a sense, an act of luxury. You can do pretty much what you want. It derives from the experience of, sh of a sheltered nation, and I mean not, not in this case America, but England, because it is a distinctly, distinctively Anglo-American tradition that has its roots in a philosophical outlook much deeper than one that is just a century or two centuries old. It derives from a history of sheltered government and legitimate government. That is to say, no invasions, no social revolutions. To just illustrate how deep the roots go, let me remind you, for example, of John of Gaunt's passionate pain to England, perhaps the first outbreak of English nationalism that one, can, one finds recorded, certainly recorded with the eloquence that Shakespeare did in which he describes the virtues of English nationalism, if you will. He describes it as this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself, against infection and the hand of war. This happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea, which serves it in the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a house against the envy of less happier lands. This blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England. The very definition of England is its isolation from 
continental intrigue, war, politics, etc. When thrust into the world, both England and the United States have found a desire that if they have to be involved in international politics, they would rather, rather than really being engaged in it, they would prefer to transform it. This is, as I say, distinctively Wilsonian, but comes before it. And fundamentally, it is the belief that liberty, commerce, and law can change the world. Hence, the emphasis on free trade, the opposition to empires, the opposition to mercantilism, the emphasis on human rights, and the emphasis on a certain kind of legalism that finds its expression in international organizations and it, in its most full-bloodied form in collective security. That is, an international organization with a framework of laws and rules that can actually restrain international power politics, competition, and war. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of this. None of it, I mean, it sounds good. And all of it, indeed, is deeply virtuous. The fundamental problem with the philosophy of choice, if you will, is that it is unconnected to power. It is unconnected in that sense to politics. Liberal internationalism, if you wish to describe it as such, fundamentally is uncomfortable with the idea of political power. And it vacillates between seeing it in this sense as useless and omniscient. Wilson, in so many ways embodying this tradition, embodies this ambiguity. He begins, for example, his presidency by talking about the irrelevance of force, so that when the Lusitania sinks in 1914, Wilson's reaction to it, in explaining his lack of reaction to it, he explains, there is such a thing as a nation being so right that it does not need to convince others by force that it is right. Three years later, of course, Wilson entirely changes his mind and decides that, in fact, American force is necessary to convince the world that, that he is right. And indeed, that American force can now be used on a crusade to transform international politics. He takes it, if you will, to the heart of international power political intrigue into the glittering halls of Versailles and tries to write a new constitution for power politics. Now, in this sense, power is redemptive. And power abroad, like power at home, can fundamentally change human nature. International social engineering, like domestic social engineering, can work. Legal structures, collective security most, most obviously, will create a new world order. For Wilson, in this, this sense, World War I was, as he described it, the war to end all wars. But precisely because of this unrealistic attitude toward power, what he created, some might argue, was the peace to end all peace. Wilson very grandly proclaimed that what he wanted, again, because he did not wish to engage in traditional power politics, was peace without victory. This was his, his greatest slogan, peace without victory. It is ironic to consider that what he got was victory without peace. That is to say, there was, there was no question that the Allies trounced Germany and established a punitive peace, but it was not one that lasted. The other tradition standing in opposition to the philosophy of choice is, if you will, the philosophy of necessity. It is a continental tradition born in an atmosphere of a hothouse of power politics with states sitting next to each other and always, if you will, careful to preempt any move by another, by another nation. So whereas England and America could always wait to see where the new threat emerged from and, and wait until it actually emerged and was actually threatening their livelihood, the continental states, being closer to the action, as it were, 
were always acting in anticipation of changes in the balance of power. The philosophy of necessity is not premised on the idea that human beings are, are evil or that war is the product of this kind of animus dominandi, uh, inherent aggressive gene. It is premised on it, an insight of Thucydides and then Rousseau that the international system, because it is anarchic, makes it impossible to have permanent peace. That states, because they are their judges, juries, and hangmen, are always themselves judging their security and acting, if you will, in perpetual self-defense. In the old argument, this is one that sometimes is, was made by Hans Morgenthau about the evil of human nature, one might point out that the, the argument would be that human beings were evil and hence war inevitably broke in 1914. The structural realists, if you will, will point out that if that were the case, then human nature would have to explain peace in 1910. In other words, in the intervening four years, a great deal changed, but presumably human nature did not. Peace in that sense requires politics, not law, power, not liberty. Now, what to make of these two traditions? I want to start, if you will, by talking about the case of Norman Angel. Norman Angel is one of the most well-known men in the world for what he is supposed to have written and for when he is supposed to have written it. And countless graduate students every five years discover Norman Angel as if stumbling upon a, a, a fresh treasure trove of arguments and, and use him to make a new set of arguments against liberal, naive idealism, as it is seen. Norman Angel wrote a book whose thesis was supposed to be that war was impossible among modern industrial states. And he had the misfortune in historical retrospect to have published this book in 1910, four years before World War I broke up. Now, having seen very recently yet one more article that began with this dramatic juxtaposition of the date of its publication and his thesis, I decided to reread Norman Angel's book and, in fact, read a 1933 edition in which he wrote a, an afterword, if you will, an afterwar afterword. And what's fascinating about the book is, is what he actually says, which is not that war among the modern industrialized states was, was not possible. In fact, quite the contrary. He argued that war among modern industrialized states was highly likely. That was precisely why he was writing the book. It was a cry to stop a trend he saw as inevitable, almost, almost inevitable. The argument Norman Angel made was that war among modern industrialized states would not prove worth it, that the costs would exceed the benefits, specifically in two senses. First, that the costs of modern warfare had gone up to a point where, as he points out, the costs of waging war for Germany in 1870 against France were astronomically higher than they had been before because of the mechanized, industrialized nature of warfare. And secondly, and this was in a way his, second, his central insight, that the nature of modern industrial capitalism, relying as it did so closely on free flows of exchange, trade, and the process of capitalism, meant that no indemnity you could possibly get from the vanquished would ever make up for the disruption of trade and commerce. That is to say, try as hard as you would, by impoverishing the vanquished, you would simply not be able to make up the kind of money you, could no, you would make in ordinary trade with it. Of course, if you think of the case of Germany after World War I, 
Angel was entirely right. And in five or six years, the Allies realized that he was exactly right and that the attempt to exact reparations from Germany was not simply harming Germany, but was harming their own economies. He has an amusing analogy where he points out that in the last quarter of the 10th century, Anlaf the Viking ventured three times into Essex and went in with, with ships laden with soldiers and came out through the estuaries of England and up the Scandinavian coast, taking with him corn and cloth and hides and clothes and jewels and women and slaves, the usual things you took back in those days. And Angel suggested that 10 centuries later, the British might, since they were now a great world power and a great naval power, they might repay the favor and go into Scandinavia and bring back, piled upon ship upon ship, butter and bacon, milk, wood, paper and iron, and bring it to England and dump it on the English market. And he says, what would happen then? Well, we know what would happen. Domestic producers of all these products would be outraged. They would regard it as an act of economic warfare. As he points out, usually when countries do this voluntarily, we hold international conferences at which we explain to them that they are ruining the economy of Britain or the United States by this act of economic warfare. In a way, that simply highlights what, what I think Angel very profoundly understood, which was that the transformation of industrial capitalism had made land less important, had made resources in the natural sense of the word less important. It had made processes of capitalism very important. It had made human capital very important. Let me give you an obvious example. Were China to invade Taiwan tomorrow, which it may well do for all kinds of reasons, the argument is not that they will not do it, but simply that they will get very little from it. Since what makes Taiwan wealthy has nothing to do with the barren soil in Taiwan. It has to do with the human capital and the structure of capitalist, in this case, advanced capitalist economy that exists there. They may take it, but they will gain very little in return, particularly if the war or the invasion costs them a great deal in terms of the disruption of investments into China and obviously the actual costs of warfare. That, if you will, is the argument of Norman Angel. And I think when you look at the world around you, it is a powerful insight. And when you look at Europe today, it is simply impossible to explain Western Europe without some recourse to, to some of these kinds of ideas. That is to say, why is it that in the incubus, the, the, the continent that invented power politics after the collapse of its universal aspiration to a kind of Holy Roman Empire, this is the continent in which power politics was created, and yet nobody seriously thinks that France will go to war with Germany. Why is that? There has to be some explanation that, that does not rest simply on happenstance. I will now come, however, to, to Angel's shortcomings, which I see as, as still the shortcomings of this, of this philosophy of choice or liberal internationalism. And these are, and in the, in this Angel's book is replete with these, that this world is not natural. It is not self-regulating. It is undergirded by power. It is undergirded by the, by the philosophy, the values, the public policy of great liberal hegemons, the United Kingdom in the 19th century and the United States in this century. And that is, I think, a fun, the fundamental insight of what I would suggest is an Anglo-American tradition that combines the philosophy of choice with the philosophy of necessity. Call it Anglo-American realism, if you will. 
It is an attempt to combine liberal, classical liberal ideals with continental power politics. It is a philosophy that was practiced or expressed by Bacon, by Hume, by Bolingbroke, by Hamilton, by Theodore Roosevelt, by Stimson, by Acheson, and I would say by the Reagan administration, most particularly. Honored to see Gene Kirkpatrick in the audience. In a way, like modern American conservatism, it tries to unify elements of classical liberalism, the free market most prominently, with traditional conservative concerns, social conservatism and such. And it is no accident, I think, that two of the great modern exemplars or recent exemplars of this tradition of Anglo-American realism have been Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, who at the domestic level were able to combine classical liberalism, that is to say free markets, with social conservatism, and were able to do so without seeing a contradiction in them. If you think about the greatest act of American foreign policy since World War II, the Marshall Plan, it is very much in that tradition, in that it, was, it is an attempt to contain an aggressive and expansionist empire, but it sees and recognizes that in order to do this, you do not simply build barricades, you do not simply arm the Western alliance, but you revive the economic and, and political structure of the states of Western Europe. The Marshall Plan was an attempt to create healthy, stable, fat, bourgeois countries, and to recognize that, that, that in doing so, you were helping them, but you were also helping yourself. There was no tribute taken from Germany. There was no indemnity taken from Germany or Japan for that matter. And that was not simply an act of charity. It was, an, as I say, an act of trying to mingle these two traditions. As we approach the third millennium, we approach it after 200 years of Anglo-American hegemony. And does anyone doubt that the world would look very different were it not for that? The, this world of great power peace, of prosperity, and of the liberalization of economics, of politics, and the increasing interconnectedness of the world, so that at least parts of the world do seem to have been transformed, would not have been possible were it not for these two great hegemons dominating the last two centuries. Just, I mean, obviously, if you think of Germany in, in its stead, that, that the point is obvious, but think of France or Spain or any of these countries. The question, of course, becomes then, can it last? And what should American foreign policy do in the next 100 years, 50 years, 20 years? My argument very simply, and I would end with this and be happy to, to continue the discussion, is that American foreign policy does not need, in Tom Paine's famous words, to make the world anew. Not because it is impossible, but because it has made the world anew since 1945. Undergirded by power, it has created a distinctive liberal international order that large parts of the world are in and others are aspiring to. What it now needs to do is simply keep that world going, keep the zones of great power, peace, and prosperity alive, and keep the, this international order of free trade, liberalizing regimes, trade, travel, and tourism alive. It is a, in some ways a less ambitious agenda than that facing American statesman at the end of the last war in 1945, but is a more difficult one because it has to be constructed in the absence of a threat, and it, ha it requires a kind of persistent incrementalism that American politics, let alone American foreign policy, 
is not suited to. So I will end with that and be delighted to take your questions. You spoke in terms of intellectual traditions and in a sense stood apart from those traditions in describing them. Now, if you think in those terms, realism is not something that necessarily objectively describes the world. It is one tradition among many which a certain way of conceptualizing or interpreting the world and is very much culture-bound, derives from, as you were at, po at pains to point out, and not, not merely from Western countries, but from certain specific Western countries, which were privileged in certain ways. Questions arise. Is one, therefore, to take realism as a, a way of thinking about foreign policy that, if you make certain assumptions, is plausible and hangs together? Or is it actually talking about the world as it is? And I think that question is particularly important now because for the first time in several centuries, non-Western countries are for the first time becoming not objects of international politics, but subjects and, and increasingly important actors. And a lot will depend on whether these non-Western countries subscribe to these Western traditions, in particular, say, the Western tradition of realism and power politics, or have a choice in this matter, or whether events will force them to subscribe to these because that's how things are. And I would very much like to hear you on that question. Well, obviously, it's a, it's a very profound question. And as you can imagine, Owen, part of, my, part of this talk is an attempt to come to, to answer that, that very question. That is to say, how can we make sense of what, what tradition would best explain the world today and, and provide, therefore, an, an analysis of going forward in terms of how to preserve peace, how to preserve stability, etc. What I'm struck by increasingly, as somebody whose disposition is very much toward realism and toward the kind of historicism that it implies, are some of its limits, by which I mean to say the more one looks at it, the more one recognizes, for example, that a balance of power is simply one way to maintain peace, that historically in fact, the more common way of maintaining peace has been an empire or, or a kind of hegemony. So that, for example, the Western Hemisphere has never had a balance of power, yet it has had peace for most of its existence. China and its surroundings have never had any kind of a balance of power. Mainly, it has had a kind of an empire. And as you say, now that we approach an entirely novel historical moment where the rest of the world moves from being an arena in which Western great powers acted to independent actors on their own, and you get, if you will, the creation of a genuine international system, what will characterize it? What I would say is realism is, a, is, is two things, as I see it. One is, it is a profound way of, looking, of, of recognizing how the world works, which is to say that in the absence of world government, certain things follow that states have to look after their own security, and because of that, they would rather rely on themselves than rely on other people, that they will tend to look to their national interests when making their foreign policy, and that in, in extremis or in crisis, this will trump anything else. So that, for example, when Saddam Hussein thinks about the, the power political opportunity of grabbing oil-rich Kuwait, he doesn't worry about the, civil the civilizational discourtesy 
of invading a fellow Arab, fellow Muslim, fellow, fellow Sunni neighbor. He goes for the, for the gold or the oil, as it were. But it is also, I think, a gestalt. It is a, it is a, a temperament. It's somewhat pessimistic, historicist. And part of that, I wonder, I wonder whether part of that is not belied by, by the world we live in. As I say, I mean, at some level, one has to be startled by the world we live in and startled by the inability of realism to fully explain it. John Mearsheim, a very prominent realist, wrote an article right after the Berlin Wall came down, said, it's called Back to the Future, very clever title. He said, this is it. Europe will go back to its traditional ways. You have a continent with great powers bustling around, and of course, they will start worrying about their own security. The thing that kept this in check was, was their common fear of the Soviet Union, which has vanished, and so you will see a return of age-old rivalries. Well, it's a little early to say that he's wrong, but certainly it's worth pointing out that it has now been 10 years. And it seems not just that, that that's not quite, quite right, but that there is very few trend lines that seem to suggest a renewal of, of that kind of national competition between France and Germany. And so I have begun to think more about what is it that transformed Western Europe? Surely it was born in the cocoon, the security cocoon created by the Soviet threat and American, the American nuclear umbrella, which in effect denationalized foreign policy. The French didn't have to worry about foreign policy because the Americans were protecting them. And I wonder whether, I'll just end, by, this is all a long-winded way of saying that I don't have an answer to your question, but I'll end by saying, for the magazine, I interviewed Lee Kuan Yew, and I said to him, you know, you look at East Asia today, and it looks like Europe 150 years ago. All these rich, powerful countries growing at 6 7% GDP, age-old rivalries, border disputes, different regimes, and much the way that Europe had, you know, monarchies and liberal democracies and semi-liberal democracies. Isn't this a sort of a situation where you will replay Europe's history? That is, you will be the world's great producers of wealth, but also the world's great producers of war. And he said, I, I'll tell you why you're wrong, which is we have seen what war does to a country. We've looked at Vietnam, for example, and we see that the world has just passed them by. What we want to do is become rich, modern, powerful states. And we just know that if you had to choose between South Korea's way of doing it and Vietnam's, we all want to go South Korea's way. Now, it's not that simple. And this is oddly sounding like Norman Angel from Lee Kuan Yew. But I think that at least there's something there worth thinking about. When I was at Harvard as a grad student, Sam Huntington was putting together this conference on the decline of multinational empires. The one lesson starting from you know, Athens and Sparta downward or upward, and the one lesson in every single essay was that whenever multinational empires decline, they do so with a bang. There's a big war. There's a lot of, there's enormous international conflict. It's a terrible, messy process. And at some point, I remember we were sitting around the room and somebody had the temerity to point out, since this was happening in 1993, that there did seem to be one exception, which was the multinational empire that was declining outside the window, that was the Soviet Union. This is all simply an attempt to try to figure out why the world that we live in is not conforming to my realist stereotypes. Are you suggesting that we can have international security so long as the major power practices realpolitik, but no one else? That's well put. I mean, we can have, here's what we can have. We can have this lovely world we live in, but if there are two things going on. The most powerful nation in the world has liberal preferences. 
and it practices real politics. In other words, if the strongest nation in the world were France, I wouldn't be so comfortable. The questions raised by this lecture and the Q&A afterward are not likely to go away anytime soon. As Zakaria admits, even in 1997, the tenets of the realism he argued for were being stress-tested by actual reality. But it is remarkable that, 24 years since his talk, we are still waiting to discover what might come next. Thank you all for listening, and as always, we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.